0: More Than Running is brought to you by KOROS, my new favorite GPS watch. I made the switch to KOROS a few months ago and I'm not going back because I need a watch that is accurate and the battery lasts, quite frankly, forever. KOROS is a performance brand that helps athletes train to be their best and they combine innovative technology, advanced hardware, and a robust mobile app to give me and you the most accurate data for any activity in any environment. They work with the absolute best athletes, from Molly Seidel to Des Linden to Ilya Kipchoge. And Chorus is really helping me build my mileage as I'm training for longer and longer distances, including the half marathon. If you visit chorus.com and use code Dana at checkout, you'll get a free accessory with any watch purchase. I've been running in the Apex 2, and I really enjoy it. But of course, you can always check out that very cool Molly Seidel version as well. Welcome back to More Than Running. I am so excited for this conversation. And as I mentioned later in the podcast, that I'm probably the last podcaster in the world to interview Lauren Fleshman on her book, Good For A Girl. But that's just the way that I do things here on More Than Running. I really wanted to take the time to not only read Good For A Girl, but talk to my fellow female athletes about their thoughts and feelings about the book. I... I think this is such an important piece that Lauren has written and poured a lot of her heart and soul into it. And for me, it was honestly hard, hard to read because a lot of the issues she talks about regarding coaching and body image are things that haven't changed over a decade later past her collegiate running experience. I think that this is a book that should be mandatory reading for coaches, and girls who are competing at the high school, collegiate, and post-collegiate level. We talk a lot about what's in the book and the shortened conversations. If you want to support Lauren and women's running, go out and buy Good for a Girl. And really just take a moment and think about the women in your lives when you're reading it. And... Think about what lauren is trying to do she talks about the future of what comes next after this book and you'll have to listen to the podcast to hear what she's saying and i'm very excited and optimistic and think that this is just such a good launching point to have these type of conversations about what it means to be a female athlete in the sport of running I wanted to give a little warning about some of the topics of conversation about body image and disordered eating that come up not only in this podcast, but also Lauren's Good for a Girl book. For this episode, I'm partnering with a resource, Equip. Concerned about an eating disorder, we've been there. Created by experts in the field and people in recovery, Equip is the leading virtual eating disorder treatment with dedicated five-person care teams for every family. Equip is in-network with many insurance companies across all 50 states. Head to www.eqip.health to learn more. Being the last podcaster in the world to interview about this book, I feel like (laughs) half of this conversation will be about book and then half will be what comes next. And we can just yeah. chat and see what goes from there. But Great. I just want to kick things off and say that I absolutely love the book. And it was something that I, haven't, I find it hard to, like, recently for me, bouncing a full-time job and podcasting and travel, it's really hard to read. And to find something that you don't want to put down feels, like, very special in a time that's extremely busy. But in a way, it also made me, like, a little bit sad that just a lot— hasn't changed in our sport. So when I was reading it, I was like, man, this was her experience. This is also my experience. And it was very complicated feelings while reading it. And I was wondering if I'm just going to jump right in, if that's a familiar reaction that you've gotten from other people.
1: Yeah. I get notes from people currently in high school that DM me on Instagram. And so even like the next generation after you, it's still still resonating. So I think that that's why I wrote the book because I felt like we talk about some of these topics individually, the abuse and sport, eating disorders, like these little things, but there is some underlying force Mm. that continues to propel it all forward that isn't going to be changed by any one news story. And I don't know that this book can change it either, but I was just figured like, if maybe if I could tell a story and make people go through the whole system with one person, they'd be able to see the way some of the things connect Mm. and that these aren't actually different issues. They all are sprouting out of a common issue of not seeing and appreciating and respecting female bodied people, women and girls, and giving them the space. And and I think just people could understand that a little bit. If we could raise our consciousness collectively on that, maybe individual actions will change the culture more quickly. And then hopefully in 20 years, someone will pick up the book and be like, this was a bestseller? Like, why none of this makes any sense? I don't know. Oh,
0: I'll be ready for that day. (laughs) I hope that comes closer than 20 years. I think that the part that really got me when reading this was just how isolating these experiences feel to the individual, even though it's a team sport. But running in a way, like, kind of isn't a team sport. Like, it's Mm -hmm. always an individual sport that we mask as team elements through cross country and ZLA team scores. But the isolating experience that you felt seems very similar to what I've talked about with former teammates I've experienced myself at some point. And I think that's what can make this book travel across the lane from just running to other sports as well, is that you could be on a big team, but you feel very alone when you're feeling anxiety, depression, body issues. Yeah. Whole gamut of issues. So much of what
1: keeps us small and silent is a shame around a feeling that we have that we think other people don't have. Like we feel alone in the feeling. And so I think that has been a really affirming experience from this book coming out is how many people are saying that, that like, I thought I was alone in that, or I didn't realize exactly how common these things were. Like I knew I wasn't completely alone, but I obviously didn't feel comfortable enough to, to where I was just talking about it with everybody. So mm-hmm. There was still something keeping it keeping us small and i think that can make a huge we know from trauma and healing in other areas of life other kinds of trauma that, that like that feeling of not being alone and that feeling of destigmatizing talking about something you've been silent about is can cause he, or create huge leaps in healing and i've that's another thing i've heard about this book from people is it was it brought up a lot of shit for me mm. like it was a little bit triggering or a lot triggering depending on the person but I also hear that it is really healing, that Mm -hmm. they're viewing themselves and their experience in a different way now.
0: So when you decided to write this book, you obviously focused on a very specific timeline. You're a grown whole person now. How did you think about where you wanted the book to start and then where you wanted to end? Because obviously you're still working in sport. You still have sponsors in sport, doing so many things like running adjacent in a way. How did you say, all right, this is the, place where I want to start this book and this is where it's want to end. Mm -hmm. And to that, will there ever be a part two?
1: I'm not sure there'll be a part two, to be honest, but never say never. I start and end the book with my dad, a relationship with me and my dad and processing something related to that relationship that could be a symbol for other things, other people, institutions, whatever. And and so the reason I chose to do that is my dad was this figure that was important in me, understanding that I was a girl and what it meant to be and also what I wasn't, which was a boy and what it meant to be a boy. And I was there, there was a time of innocence before I really knew that before my body or my neighborhood boys or my school or society or the newspaper or the TV taught me what I was or what I should be. And so I I wanted to start it there at the beginning of that loss of innocence or, yeah, innocence around that. And then I wanted to end it with the moment where I realized that just how deep patriarchy, doing things for other, the things that caused me throughout the story to lose myself, just how deep those fingers or those roots were into me, and it took the death of my dad and taking a moment, like in grief, on the track to realize that I wanted to claim that track movement the rest of my life. I wanted to claim it for myself, and that's when I got myself back at whatever age that was. And that that's a journey I think that I would wish for every woman is Mm -hmm. to have experiences, read the books, do the work in or out of therapy, whatever in relationship. To reclaim yourself for yourself in your entirety, which we don't make easy in our culture.
0: Yeah, certainly not. I actually, for the first time, I've talked about on this podcast before, but I did therapy for the first time this fall because after retiring, after the Olympic trials, I found myself working full-time, but also still racing because I didn't know who I was without running. And I would yeah tri- really, really hard, do run race, and then do the race and felt like I didn't want to do another one, which was not, was a new experience for me. But then I would take a week off and reset. And I did that three times over a year. And I was like, this is insane. You're, yeah. you're going crazy. This isn't healthy. And I eventually did see a therapist and she was like, you know, there's a difference between loving running and movement and training, like running and training are different. And you can like still really love to move and be involved in the community and sport without pushing your body in that way anymore. And it was like, this eye-opening experience that, wait, I'm allowed to do this without pushing myself to the absolute limit. And it was in that moment that I was like, felt like I could breathe again in a way. And it was so fascinating because your self-worth is by running fast because it is Mm -hmm. so equally validating of I ran fast, I get praise, rinse and repeat.
1: Yeah. And you, Man, what you experienced yeah. was a was really like a remembering because there was a time when you knew that. Mm-hmm. You knew that in your bones as a child. You hang out with kids and they move because they like moving and the joy of movement and they enter sports originally because they want to explore a different way of moving their body alone or with a team or whatever. And yeah, then we forget.
0: Mm-hmm. It, like The
1: sports systems have all kinds of things that Make us forget. And uh, so I just think that's so beautiful when you get to remember. It's so nice on the other side once you remember.
0: <laughs> I know. And it's one of those weird places. I almost do consider us the, like the women on the other side in a way, mm-hmm. where then you would go to these races and you see someone witnessing like the stress and anxiety that you went through. And you like know exactly how it feels and you know the weight that's sitting on their chest and all the pressures that come with it. And it's, there's no jealousy and envy anymore it's almost like for me I can only speak for myself but it's almost like a calm that I don't have to have this but also like an aching sadness that other people are still feeling that way of oh you can't see that there's this is so much there's so much more life to live
1: yes and that's what made coaching professional athletes really tricky for me because during the process of of like returning to myself and reclaiming myself and claiming movement for joy. I was then going to work and coaching athletes to be the best and compete the best. And even though I was taking like a more holistic approach than a lot of professional coaches, I was, excellence was still the driver. And that times got hard for me when I would, especially when I would see how much it it, just how much strife that it would create sometimes like it can create a lot of beauty like being uncomfortable can create a lot of growth and so I would try to like direct the just the uncomfortable parts towards growth but really I just a lot of times wanted to be like hey maybe you should stop because it's actually not because you're you can still get faster for sure mm-hmm. Like it's also really awesome to just stop <laughs> and do this other thing but right. that's not my job as a coach when you're hired to help people be excellent.
0: I know. All I wanted in college at one point, I was like, what if we just showed up one day and we got to play games? And everyone was like, you're insane. That's never going to happen. This is a D1 team. You're not going to have a game day. You're an adult. And I just that thought, Man, so that would have been great. <laughs> so I did want to speak to you a little bit about coaching. And I think one thing where I look to you, obviously, is there are so many coaches that have, female coaches in particular, who have been in a very similar position to you, who coach and then find one reason or another that it's doesn't exactly fit in a way. And one thing that I've been discussing a lot and have wanted to do a longer podcast about trying to interview a lot of female coaches who have actually left the sport is whether it's because of, it doesn't. Traveling every single weekend doesn't fit with having a family or the lack of promotion opportunities. You're an assistant, but you're never going to be director things like that. Did you ever consider coaching at the collegiate level or was professional coaching the only place where you felt like was it fit for you?
1: Professional coaching was the only place for me because I got a, a recruiting call to be a Stanford for a Stanford job in 2008 after I just missed the Olympic team. And I remember being really mad. because I was like, oh, you think I should quit? You're basically telling me that you don't believe in my future because you think I should coach. It's just so funny to think about it now that way. but But I wouldn't have wanted the job anyway, because I think that Coaching cross country and track and field is the hardest coaching job because you have three seasons and then you have summer training, you have recruiting. It's, there's no off season, there's mm-hmm. literally none. And they work really hard, they're not paid enough. And then there's the whole gender roles thing. Like, I think it's just tough, no matter what your gender is, to be an active, present parent or friend, like, or just family member when you have that job. And, and so it's a good fit for some people and it's just not a good fit for other people. If you want to have roots and you want to have, be available for coffees and community and uh, coaching is just not it. But on the professional level, we do have an off season and they're adults, so they can travel to competitions without me. So I can go to some, but I don't have to go to all of them. And then I got to do the thing that drew me to coaching, which was, okay, I'm going to put into practice, I'm going to do a little test with my theory that if that a lot of women are being cut out of the sport before they reach their prime because we don't Mm. recognize this different physiological development wave that women have and what if I took a group of those women that usually don't get another crack and I gave them another crack and we focused on health we focused on this just getting them to that true what do we need to do to get you to the your true prime and get you healthy and like confident and with agency so that when you hit the age of your true prime like you can really, and, and I, that was very fun to put into practice, like to test that and see it happening and coming true and going, oh yeah, this works. This really does work. But then once I answered that question and, and for myself and started looking into the long-term future, is this what I want to do for six to eight women for the rest, for the rest of my professional life? Or do I want to try to take some of these lessons and use them to spread it more broadly to, shift, try to shift sports more on a whole. And obviously I did the second one.
0: Yeah. I think that there's a time and place for both of them. And you've obviously participated in both arenas, but it is a space where I've thought a lot myself of it was so revolutionary having your team and program, obviously being at the professional level, there are very few places as a post-collegiate athlete to be coached by a female coach, unless Mm -hmm. you stick in your college area. And yeah, I think there's like a, almost like a desperation that comes with it because you don't really get to your vet your coach when you don't have a lot of options. So yeah. you're like, whoever, who's going to take me? I'll go there, and it's yep likely not the best situation and scenario. And I think the best women who perform well are because they may be coached by a male head coach, but they have great female mentorship on the team, and you see that time and time again. And yeah. That is something that I was like, man, if I could go back and think to myself when I was looking for a pro space that need female mentorship would have been number one and trying a little bit harder to say, you know what, trust yourself. If you're going to do this for six months, find a female coach. But I actually have never been coached by a female coach at any level of sport, which, you know, as a 29-year-old who's been in this for a really long time is, you know, pretty upsetting to me. Cause as someone who's also trying to promote more women in sport and answer this question of like why don't high school girls really care about the pros too. It's we don't even have mentors as coaches. And I do see some shifting at the NCAA level, but definitely not the pro level, which is just
1: Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. so tough. It's, just, it's really hard to get paid, to, to be mm-hmm. honest. It's like uh, so many coaches male and female are doing it for free. And then there's a few, if you are willing and able to travel nonstop and make it your entire life and coach a huge squad, like you might be able to get some money from somebody. If you want to have a family, you probably have a spouse that's doing the vast majority of the caregiving and household management in order to do that. And so just, it's harder as a woman, if you're heterosexual to find a male partner who is happy to just do all that. Mm -hmm. They've been socialized the other way around to look for somebody else to do all that. We're up against those forces too.
0: For sure. My other theory too, which I tell the group that I run with here in San Francisco, I was like, at one point, I really thought that it'd be very challenging to have two partners in a relationship both running well at the same time because you don't see that very often where only one partner is running more successfully than the other. And it's very rare where you see two people performing at a high level at the same time. And I always thought that was really fascinating too. And I thought it was pretty badass when it was like the woman in the relationship was running at a higher level. So I was like, oh, what are the sacrifices being made on the other side?
1: Yeah. They, I just saw a little snippet. It's probably like an excerpt from Kara Goucher's upcoming book, but she did a little snippet on social media. Maybe you saw it about the day that Adam showed up in a Go Kara shirt or whatever to an event as like this turning point where she really felt that he had, cause he used to be the one that was the star when she wasn't. And that it was an adjustment period to get used to her being the star and him being on the tail end of his career. But that is a powerful moment when that person is willing to be like, no, I'm here for you. Like I recognize that. And Jesse and I were competing in different sports, but the times when we were both doing well, him and triathlon and me and track were the hardest on our marriage. It was extremely difficult because nobody had the energy to be the support person, and you need a support person.
0: Yeah, you definitely do. And the one thing I noticed in your book is that I felt like you very clearly took a lane of not being, I think sometimes like feminists get a bad rap for being hypercritical of men, but in almost no way it seemed like there was just, like you mentioned, like this envy in a way of how carefree it seemed to be a male in sport compared to how complicated it is to be in a woman's sport. And I was wondering how you decided to choose how you spoke about men versus women, particularly in this book.
1: Yeah, I think I'm like, I use she, her pronouns and I identify as a woman, but I'm actually a pretty gender fluid person. So that might influence my angle. I'm not sure. But also I just have always felt like it's an oversimplification to make men into the bad guys or something or to try to achieve I totally agree. A better space by bring, by putting somebody else down and in the next 10 years we're going to be learning. There's just we're going to be learning so much more about how men are suffering in our culture the way it is right now and uh, they need they actually need a lot of help. And then when it comes to our sport, we are a combined gender sport. It's and if 82% of the running coaches are still male, and our teammates, the ones that we look up to and travel alongside our male, we can't fix these problems by ourselves. These are, shouldn't be women's problems to solve. They should be running's problems or sports athletes' problems to solve. If any, if a group of us are suffering, we should all try to come together and raise our awareness, figure out the tools to help, figure out just like you would for your cross-country team. If two of your members were struggling, you'd we all have to kind of show up for each other. And so it's like, it does no good to alienate them. And I just don't know that they're like, There's very few people that are bad actors, like good people making bad decisions sometimes, usually out of ignorance. And usually it's not their fault. Usually it's because nobody told them. And then I thought it was important in the book to demonstrate all the ways that even as a woman, as a feminist, that I was also contributing to the problem. And I think in the Mary Kane scene, when I witness her being verbally abused and I do nothing, even as a woman passionate about Women's well being, even as a female coach with a team dedicated to women's well being, even I could sit there and see it and say nothing. That's Mm -hmm. how hard it is. That's how strong these forces are and how much power some of these men have. And like, you're, it's almost like you, I just wanted to acknowledge that this isn't easy. And so it's not something we can do alone. Like, we need a giant shift from all of us.
0: Yeah. That's, scene resonated with me also just so deeply because I, there's been a lot of discourse recently about what's going on at certain college teams and not others. And I think what you break down is like, this is happening everywhere. Maybe at one point or another, it's being flagged at certain team, but this is, this is a persistent issue that's happening across the board. But one experience I had was I always felt like the top five were treated differently than the bottom 15. And I being in the top five at my college always had that privileged experience. And you don't even, you get snippets of seeing how other people are treated, but you don't want to lose your spots. You're not willing to say anything. Yeah. And I've really looked back at this over the past, it's almost been, it's been six years since I've graduated and been like, wow, I could have done a lot more for my teammates who were struggling, but I just felt like, my position was unstable. So I didn't feel like I had the confidence to do something for them. And now I'm like, wow, that one time your coach said that athlete had not done anything for six weeks when she was training two hours in the pool every single day, said she looked overweight. You're like, I definitely should have said something because I knew that was a problem. But yeah, you're right. It's like sitting on the sidelines, like knowing when to speak up and now being in a position where you have some sort of an audience, you're like, Am I educated enough to even speak on these issues? And that's the position where I am now. I'm like, I would love to flag these, but I want to be able to have the education and the spotlight to the experts versus just speaking from a soapbox.
1: Yeah. And I think that there's also a gender thing there where women in general, when studied, feel that we need to be an expert and have all of the pieces in line before we'll apply for a job. We we feel we need to meet 100 percent of the ap- the qualifications before doing that. Whereas I think men were like 70%. If they'd met 70% of the requirements, they'd apply. And that's that's something that we need to raise our own awareness about too is we don't need to be perfect. We don't need to have it buttoned up before we say something. But then huge caveat, we live in like a cancel culture environment where mm-hmm. you will experience getting smacked down for screwing up if you don't have it all figured out. And so that like we, if we're going, we have to do both things at the same time. We have to be willing to speak out before we have it figured out perfectly because real people are being harmed right now. So like, you can't wait till you have it perfect to speak out. But then we also need to create a softer landing for those that are speaking out when they mess up. Like we're a part of that. We're part of society. Each mm-hmm. of us is. And uh, like that, and that's going to create a better space for things to improve.
0: I think social media has really made this extra complicated too, because it is so easy to clap back or say a quick comment and without really thinking about the human on the other side of things. Do you, how do you feel like your career would have been different with, I know social media wasn't a part of it, but being more related to how you get contracts. Even college athletes are getting contracts based on their social media presence now. And it's persistent of just, this is really important to have a platform, but it also is very dangerous in a way where, Anything you say can be misconstru- misconstrued. Yeah, it adds a huge amount of
1: pressure to people younger and younger. And then we also know that the money from name, image, and likeness stuff is being is amplifying the sort of patriarchal forces that already exist and the misogyny that already existed because their money is being disproportionately awarded to female athletes that are attractive, deemed attractive to the straight male gaze, straight white male gaze more than any other group. And it's like the conversation around AI and like the, like if it's mining the internet for the things it's going to say, if it's mimicking us, then Mm -hmm. it's amplifying all the inequities and biases that are in that in oh, yeah. What pool. was that
0: chat? GPT was like, describe an engineer to me, like a, <laughs> the top qualifications for an engineer. And it was like, white, male. Yes. All those sort of things.
1: Yeah. And that's what NIL stuff is doing too. And that's what the dangers are of all of this stuff. So that's the kind of stuff that makes me feel like grateful that I didn't have those forces when I was growing up to that degree. Really, it was just Let's letsrun.com. It was like the fear of Oh, so gross when I look back at it now, like the fear of being criticized by this majority male um, chorus of voices, unknown nameless, faceless voices mm-hmm. in a basement somewhere that had so much power where I didn't want them to say something bad, but I also really wanted them to say something about me being hot. It was like, yeah, yeah. You, you want you wanted their approval because somehow that indicated your value to those in power. And in. But I don't know. And now there's just that, just has morphed to social media more broadly. And I think one big thing for me having the courage to publish this book was I had to wrap my head around the idea that I was going to get slammed on the internet, that people were going to say things that where they didn't really know me. And has that happened? Surprisingly little. The only issue it has blown up on is like the issue of trans inclusion to a UK audience. The US audience hasn't even been very bad on that there's been a few things like i get two a week of horrible yeah. from someone in the u.s but that the uk if you say anything about trans inclusion of, to that audience it's like really it's like maga people it's like that level of
0: it's shocking inflammatory yeah. for the uk audience especially in athletics because it is such a small segment of people who are already marginalized and it's yeah. really just taking zero nuance. And I remember a couple of Thanksgivings ago, I had some a distant family member at dinner, and I was we were talking about this, and it was about the sprinters in Connecticut. Like this is probably four or five years ago. I don't know if you remember that, but yeah, I, do. I was yeah. talking about uh, the difference between like sex and gender at, this, at Thanksgiving dinner. And my sisters, please stay. don't try. And I'm just sitting there being like, this is the difference. And I think I had just taken or just had graduated. I was like, I'm going to use every single women in gender studies knowledge I have to date. But I think it's very strange that instead of promoting women's sport, people want to take down a very small at-risk group of people who are trans. And I just fundamentally don't understand because it's people who aren't even interested in sport in the first place. It's very strange to me. And I can't even wrap my head around it.
1: Yeah, it's. It is a very surprising and strange kink in the human brain. It's like we all have this little hole in our head that makes us take up huge amounts of oxygen on an issue. And it's mostly white men. I have had similar messages with family members where they're like, what do you think about trans inclusion in sports? Like a white male relative in their 60s or something. And then I'm like, here's what I think. And they're like, I think you're wrong. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> oh,
0: you're great. like, okay, let's continue this like, conversation. This is the first
1: conversation in 20 years you've shown any interest in women's sports. So that's like, um, you're now you're showing up to defend it. And I'm like, okay. Okay. There's a lot of other ways I can direct you to if you want to protect women's sports. It's a fine for you to have an opinion on that. But here's 10 other more useful things that apply to a much larger group of people. Mm-hmm. Go a lot farther.
0: So as you're thinking about what, com- what comes next in this like beautiful new chapter you have. You're a best-selling author. You are discovering new sports. I see that you picked up ski touring and other fun things this winter. Yeah. What... Is like the new pathway that you want to continue creating change for women. Obviously having these conversations is extremely important, but it can only go so far when speaking to the same people. So I guess yeah, what's next for you and how do we get more people interested in these type of conversations?
1: To be honest, I don't really know. I have a couple ideas. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about is pursuing this coach certification program for to coach female-bodied people, like a
0: mm.
1: like taking like a safe sport, like what we've done with Safe Sport, and making sure, like, even if we can't make it mandatory, which I'd love to make it mandatory, you could make it a thing that people look for, like the gluten-free symbol or. A non-gmo or something where once we've raised the consciousness of female athletes and their parents to go hey is this coach cert- do they have that certification or are they completely going to be clueless on these things i think that's one thing and then another thing i, I um could see myself pursuing is trying to develop this alternative ranking pr- ranking system for college programs and this this only affects a few hundred thousand women so i have to really think about like how much time to put into various things, Uh, but I do think it could have a ripple effect, which is if you right now, the only ranking system we have is by performance. And whereas something like the U.S. News and World Report ranking system of colleges overall, not athletics, just colleges, which I know has its own bullshit stuff, but it's based on some other formula that counts in certain variables. So what variables could we choose that would create an alternative sports team ranking system that would help? Athletes, as they're coming up in high school, make choices that will impact their health and their well-being and protect their love of sport and also be able to perform their best. And because right now they're going into these things blind, really, like you show up as a freshman. The only information you have is to ask athletes on the team or to watch how they eat or you can't even count on somebody telling you the truth as they're trying to get you to join the team. So I think something yeah. like that could be really cool, and it would add pressure to these universities to do a better job in areas that they're not naturally financially motivated to do.
0: I, if there's any way I could possibly help in that, I think that would be an incredible step forward. I'd, when I was looking at schools, it was, oh, I would never look at Duke because they have a problem. And then you're yeah. like, you end up at your school and they have the same problem. And you're, <laughs> shoot, I'm glad I heard that random person. And it's Yeah, if there was some sort of—even just knowing, like, they interviewed female candidates in the coaching search process. Yeah. At least they try. I mean, I know that change comes really slowly. When I learned that prior to the NCAA, the previous system had more female coaches coaching women, and now we've skewed so far from that, it would be just great to have more information, especially as— Especially track and field is so, in a way, binary. You ran this time. Yep. You can go to this type of school. And often you don't do a lot of the research that other people do when they do visits because you can just look at the times and say, that's it.
1: Yeah. And we can use other industries. Think about when you're doing a job search. If you could only find out what the salary was, but you couldn't find out what the benefits were, what parental leave policy they have, what's their vacation policy, like what's all these other things that are more about your holistic experience, how much work from home versus in person, like you're creating a decision that's based on much more than income. There are people every day that choose a job that pays less because it creates the lifestyle and the values that they care about. And we just don't have a way for people to do that in sport. Mm -hmm. And that feels like a real, some real low hanging fruit.
0: As you align yourself with like certain sponsors and opportunities, is that something you also do in your research before you Pursue any brand deals or partnerships, or I know that obviously with Wazell you spoke to that deeply. It's a weird space that you live in of athlete. I, you probably wouldn't call yourself an influencer in any way, but have a certain level of influence that yeah. you have to do like a vetting process of who you're partnering with long term. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I as a, it's so tough to do that that I don't. I currently only have one part in that. I just I'm a little gun shy to try to bring on anybody else because there is a lot of vetting involved. Patagonia that brings like drag to the outdoors and makes the outdoors more accessible for the queer community. They do a great job of explaining like just how rigorous their system is for figuring out which people to partner with. And if I were to partner with more people, it would be super important to me to do that because I just wouldn't want to direct somebody to something that wasn't like doing the actions. Like Solomon is a partner that supported and mother was creating mm. a totally new playbook for in getting parents to able to compete in the event, like with
0: childcare and deferred Yeah, I was at that like event this fall. It was oh, at the awesome. Solomon WN mar- half marathon. And yes, just hearing the stories of the women who are on the trail in this race, they had, you could drop your kids off at childcare and the difference that meant for a mom to be able to do yeah. a race and to think how basic and simple it is. But yeah, yeah, there's some incredible work being done, but unfortunately it's expensive and on a small scale.
1: Yes, and you have to, are people just, are women a campaign for these people? Or mm-hmm. is it, are they actually like taking actions, like putting money up to make it better?
0: I just have one last question for you. Yeah. I could really talk to you all day about all these issues. I think one interesting thing that I've seen too is that women are going longer and longer in sport. And I would wanted to hear how there's probably women that you know used to compete against that are still competing. Yeah. How does that make you feel that the space that you're working in and making change, like witnessing the change, witnessing what's happening within sport today with kind of this rise of moms competing postpartum and being like very competitive? I know it's probably an interesting place, place to live in on your end.
1: Yeah, I think I left at the right time for me I think there are a lot of women who left before they would have liked to because of age discrimination in contracts they turned 28 and suddenly they were considered old and they had no choice they had to quit or pregnancy or whatever it was there are all these reasons but for me I left when I was ready and um and I just didn't want to fight injuries anymore I didn't want to spend that much energy on this one narrow focus of my life that used to bring me a lot of joy and drive and I It just wasn't. But it's so encouraging to see that if you are a woman who does maintain the drive and has your best years ahead of you and you want to keep competing, like we now live in a world, in a space, in a country, in a sports system where that is possible, where it used to not be possible. It doesn't mean we don't still have a bunch of stuff to work on, but that's encouraging. It's like one of the bright lights that shows that some things are getting better, even though I'm still hearing from the high school athlete that the problems that you and I faced are still alive today, there are these other things going better.
0: Yeah. There's definitely some moments of optimism and I feel like if we get too dark, we won't move forward. (laughs) Yeah. And we need to see that things can change. And they certainly have just from
1: my mom to me, which I talk about in the book, like
0: Mm -hmm. one
1: generation, my entire life is possible and her, she couldn't have done any of the 20 things I spend most of my time on. So it's, it's remarkable. It's just tough when you're looking at the now and you see the pain and the hurt like you you do need to look at it because you need to be motivated to change things but then yeah you gotta realize that like it's an ongoing long breath
0: cheers to this book being irrelevant in 20 years we hope yes Please, please, I'll leave it at that. Okay. I would recommend this book to literally any person who moves, especially the men in my life. And I'm just I'm very grateful for you to write this and being yourself and keep sharing that authenticity throughout everything that you do. And I will be cheering for you for what other pathway that becomes. It's just been such a pleasure to be witnessing this change. And it's like very empowering to watch on my end.
1: Oh, thank you. That means a lot. And I'm cheering for you as well. There's a lot of
0: exciting things ahead. More Than Running is on the Sidious Mag podcast network and is edited and produced by Mike Cerzolo. If you liked this episode, please send me a note and check out the More Than Running newsletter on Substack. See you next time.